It has been a little while, but welcome back, everyone, to a chat with Oliver. Today, I'm joined via a very via Zoom, sorry, by a very special guest. He is a former police officer, a published Australian race car author, and a published rugby league author. And that surprise, surprise, is how I was able to meet him. I had the honour last year. Well, sorry, two two years ago, a bit over a year ago now in late 2020, had the honor of attending his book launch to interview himself and a few ex-rugby league players on behalf of Footy and Frothies. It is Anthony Loxley, otherwise known as Tony. Tony, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to hearing about your story uh, as I like to do with most people at first, uh, I want to get to know a bit about your background, just growing up in general. Now, people won't see this because this is audio, but you are wearing a classic North Sydney Bears jersey right now, and you said that was a big part of your childhood. So please uh, explain to us what it was like growing up in general for Tony Loxley and why that jersey is significant to you. Yeah, well, okay, so give my age away. I was born in 1965. Um, I was born in North Sydney. Uh, 48 Thomas Street, North Sydney was where we lived. And, uh, um, of course, being North Sydney, it was a – back then it was a very much a hard uh, hard uh, area to grow up in. People think it's an elite suburb today, but back when I was a kid, you know, North Sydney was as tough as area as you could get, you know. Um, it, it was very working class. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone was plumbers and uh, they were, uh, builders, most worked for the PMG or the DMR or something like that. You know, my family were all, uh, plumbers and, um, yeah, it was pretty tough living, mate. It's, it was very tough. In fact, very, very tough. There was times we didn't have much money at all, you know, and that's the whole neighborhood, but, uh, mum was a nurse, dad was a, a plumber and, uh, yeah, mate, look, it's, it's like anything, you know, you just, uh, you, you, you just do your best in the circumstances that you have. But it, that that type of upbringing taught me great humility too. You know, I uh, I knew what uh, what it was like not to have enough food. I knew it was like sometimes not to have clothes. Um, it was just the way the life was back then. Uh, we were all in the same boat. Went to North Sydney Demonstration School. And like any other kid growing up back in the – 60s into the early 70s you know you, you you followed your local football team and of course my local football team was North Sydney and uh, I'm actually wearing one of the flick North Sydney jerseys put out recently by um, uh, uh, Ross Pittman so thanks Ross um, but yeah mate look at North you know that, that was part of my life you know uh, following the Bears you know but my dad, funny enough, and all my uncles, my grandpa, they all followed South, so you work that out. <laughs> I can't follow it, but um, yeah, it was it was look, it was a John Sawyer type of life too. You know, we'd swim down at uh, Waverton Bay where the old BP oil refinery used to be, or the oil tanks, and swim amongst the ships, and oh, it was amazing. It was a great life. I played for McMahon's Point, which was a junior North Sydney uh, team, uh, North Sydney Rugby League team. And, uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it just cemented my love of the Bears and, of course, cemented my love of rugby league. And, uh, yeah, mate, look, it's, you know, if you want to have humility in life, you've got to do things tough, you know. And, uh, you know, our family did it very tough back then. Um, you know, good mum and dad, you know, they looked after us best they could. And my grandparents, 
when mum and dad were working, would uh, basically look after us. Um, I remember as a little boy looking over the balcony at North Sydney where we lived there and uh, watching mum walk home in her nurse's outfit, you know, uh, and then, you know, she'd come and sleep and then dad go to work and grandma would look after us. And it was very tough. I was the oldest of five. And uh, But that's how life was back then, mate. You know, I think a lot of people today don't understand, nor would they appreciate how tough life was in the 60s and 70s in any way or form. So you just mentioned there you're the oldest of five. Um, obviously, mum worked as a nurse. When she came home, grandma would look after you. And I guess it was sort of a bit of a revolving door of who was sort of taking care of the kids. As the oldest, at least when you got a little bit older, did some of that responsibility start to fall on you? Um, sort of being the oldest kid uh, looking out for your younger siblings? Oh, absolutely, mate, absolutely. Um, yeah, look, my earliest memories probably, okay, so I'm 56 now, so I'm born in 50, 65, as I said, so I reckon around about 1968, 69, I had very fond memories or very strong memories. Uh, Mum and Dad had a few parties and few soldiers from Vietnam turned up, you know, they were all in their military uniforms and being very close to Sydney, you know, if a word went out there was a party, then, you know, everyone and anyone turned up. <laughs> it was quite, I'm uh, very lucky to uh, to experience that, you know. I remember some American servicemen, I remember some Australian servicemen. Um, yeah, it was great. My brothers and sisters, uh, yeah, look, as we moved on into the 70s, um, and they all came along. Yeah, it was difficult, mate, because, you know, um, it, it, being a big brother doesn't necessarily mean that you um, you actually take care of them per se, but what you do, you keep an eye out for them, you know. And in my little adventures with my best mate at the time, David Powick, running around the back streets of North Sydney and, you know, and through Braithwaite there and through the old nursing home where all the old World War One soldiers used to, used to be and, and World War II soldiers, the repatriation hospital there at Braithwaite. You know, it was uh, my brothers and that would come with me, and they were only very little, my sister, Belinda. But for the most part, you know, because I was so young, I didn't really have to worry too much. As we got a little bit older and we moved from North Sydney to Eastwood, uh, yeah, it was a bit different then. But, you know, we were very lucky back then because family always looked after you. You know, there was always someone to look over you. Um, whether it was uncles or aunties or grandmas and grandpas, I was lucky to grow up with having all my grandmas and grandpas, and um, I have nothing but fond memories of them. They're just wonderful, and I still remember the smell of the the baking cakes in the afternoon, and you know the, the incinerator burning in the backyard, like everyone used to have an incinerator burning on the weekend, and you know the gardening, and you know one fond memory I must tell you is my grandma Martin. Um, made me this, uh, it was probably 1972, 73, made me a, or knitted me a, uh, a jumper. And I refused to put it on. I was screaming blue murder because it was like putting on, uh, you know, threads of uh, straw. It was that coarse, you know, and uh, yeah. oh, I tried everything to get out of that. And I just flatly refused. And I know my mum was very embarrassed. My grandma was very upset. But, you know, hey, you could have used something a little bit softer on the skin. But, you know, they're fun memories, other things like my brothers and sisters were all playing one day out the backyard of Grandma's house at North, at uh, Eastwood, and I fell and split my knee from one end to the other on a broken bird bath. And I never forget, I could see my bone 
and my knee bone at the bottom, I still have this huge scar on my knee, or what used to be a huge scar when I was a little boy. Uh, but, you know, that, that part of the insignificance of what happened to me in years to come. So, yeah. Yeah, so I guess we'll fast forward a little bit now um, to when you first, I guess, had that idea, that light bulb moment in your head, or when that passion started to grow uh, to become a police officer, because, of course, you eventually would. But at first, I just want to know what inspired you or what motivated you to become a police officer. I had an uncle who was a, a police officer. He was a police diver. Um, and uh, uh, I'd heard the stories of what he went through as a police diver. Um, we had some members of the family in the police. My grandfather was good mates with Bumper Farrell, of course, the legendary Newtown um, uh, player and uh, police officer. Uh, my grandfather, was he was a tough nut too. So I mean, everyone was tough back then, you know. It was just the way the world was. Um, mate, I, that, that was probably the seed, I guess. But, you know, I, I did a lot of jobs. I left school in 81. I refused to do 11, year 11 and 12, which I tell my kids today finish school. It's very important. However, I had a great job at Channel 10 uh, offered to me. So I went to work at Channel 10 and um, I began taking photographs at the same time uh, of speedway events, motor racing, and I really enjoyed my photography. Um, and then, of course, uh, I was there for three and a bit years and uh, Channel 10 and then I, which was based at um, North Ride then, and then I went to the funeral industry, believe it or not, and I spent five or six years in the funeral industry very young. I was probably one of the youngest in the country and eventually ran funeral homes, you know, or managed them. So that was an exciting time. But all through that time, Oliver, I had this passion for wanting to join the cops and, I, and it had just been something that sat in the back of my mind. But it took a while, you know. I had a lot of different jobs at the time and every one of them taught me a little bit more experience, you know. Unfortunately, I had a few marriages as well, which uh, I probably won't go into that, but, you know, these things happen. Um, Having said that, I, I think I joined, uh, I, I ran a magazine, Speedway magazine, Speedway Racing News in the 90s. And as as the 90s came to an end, that's when the seed really started to grow within me. I, I uh, decided uh, after my marriage breakup that um, I would go and work in the pub system for a little while and was working in pubs. And, and uh, so I put an application in the 2000s to join the New South Wales Police. And, uh, uh, you know, they got back to me. I had to, you know, I hadn't been to school for so long. So what I did was I had to do a pre-entrance exam and an IQ test and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I passed and I I, I couldn't believe it. And um, But it was hard work too. I was very nervous, you know. I was nervous and thinking, Jesus, you know, how am I going to do this? It's just a lot of work. But I got through it and I did it. So uh, I was, uh, the following year, I was into the academy down at um, Goulburn. Well, actually, we started at Richmond before that uh, as a, like a precursor to the New South Wales Police Academy because they were getting so many people coming through uh, and they were really low on numbers too at the time. So it was a big recruitment drive. And then I went down to the academy and then the rest is history, you know. It was a, it was a hell of a ride. So... Let's go into your journey within the police force itself. I just want to know, I know this is very vague, but what is it like to be a police officer? Because 
people have so many different ideas. You know, there are some people who think you go out every night gunslinging and, you know, chasing after criminals. But there's more to it than that. What would be the average evening or day out on patrol for you or working, whether it was behind a desk, whatever, what was the average day working as a police officer for Tony Loxley? Okay, so I was 35. Um, I had kids and uh, I'd had a fair bit of life experience compared to most people who are in the cops, even a lot of cops, you know, I'd I'd had a lot of life experience, done a lot of things and, you know, in the police, uh, sorry, in the fuel industry, I, I actually had uh, worked for the police by having the police contract, so going to all the murders, suicides, everything you could imagine where the police had to have deceased removed back to the uh, – for autopsies, etc. and you know, I saw some absolutely abhorrent, horrific things there um, over the years. But, um, you know, I was young and, uh, you know, I always had this theory that the dead don't – never worried me it was always the the living that worried me and still does to this day but the dead was just like a for me it was just um a uh, situation where it was just the shell left over and the soul had gone uh, no matter what the circumstance and that's how i coped with that okay so i started in the blue mountains i was sent to the blue mountains which is where i lived which is probably the worst thing i could have done i should have gone to a busier station blue mountains was uh a good place to learn, but because it was so boring, um, you know, you were driving hundreds of kilometres just to, you know, um, to just to see someone some nights, you know. Uh, then you had to contend with the winter and the, you know, the, the lack of people on the streets and that. And, and I really wanted to get stuck in. That was why I joined the police. I didn't want to be sitting around twiddling my thumbs um and nothing against the the police back then you know but uh i think a lot of them were were happy just to sit around and do nothing was i was a probationary constable a fairly old one too and i didn't want to sit around and do nothing you know i wanted to get out there and do my job so maybe i was a little bit exuberant you know and i got into trouble a couple of times but you know because i i I did get step in probably too hard a couple of times but you know that's part of the learning process too and things that i would teach people in years to come by my own experience in the police uh, as a, uh, a teaching officer. But, yeah, look, it, it's not all gung-ho like people think. You know, you put that uniform on the first couple of years and, you know, you, you really you are proud of it. You know, you, you put it on, you want to look 100%. But as the years roll on, it's just a uniform, you know. It, I never had an ego. It, 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 to me, it was just a job, and I'd had many jobs at the past, so it made no difference to me. Um, what it was for me, however, was uh, a very good pay packet, um, but an opportunity to get out there and do something for the people in New South Wales. Now, I know that sounds a bit kitsch, but it's actually not. You know, that's why you do it. I mean, uh, Oliver, when you join the New South Wales police, there's a good chance you may not come home. Yeah. And over the years, a lot of police have died on duty, and I've known a few. And I went to a few uh, um, funerals for those that we lost along the way. And for the most part, when I first started, yeah, look, it was just a learning process for the first couple of years. Um, like I said, it was uh, being working up in the Blue Mountains probably was the worst thing I could have done because it's just a really quiet um area of policing however you only had one car on at any one time up at either katoomba or 
uh, Springwood because there's two stations up there, or there's Highway Patrol at um, Lawson. But, you know, um, so if something serious did happen, which of course happened, you know, there were some terrible things that happened. Don't get me wrong. It was some very exciting times and you know, there was times where we were fighting for our life, you know, don't get me wrong there. But it was a rare occurrence, you know, but, but when things happened, it happened big, you know, big car accidents, you know, sadly a lot of suicides up there, a lot of mental health, a lot of brawls, um, but it's settled down a lot now. But uh, uh, it was pretty tough when I was there. But um, then I moved to Parramatta. I asked for a transfer and, well, my world changed completely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what yeah. happened was I went to Parramatta and I started with the community crime unit, which was based at Wentworthville. And, um, again, you know, you're seconded to this for the most part. You know, the officers want to get off the streets, have a bit of a break. But I tell you, <laughs> it, it was full on. Yeah. You know, you the trains are a very tough area to police. They haven't been, of course, lately because of COVID. But back when the trains are running full steam, you know, um, it's it's very very busy you know uh particularly at night time and we were going to mount Druitt, we we're going to blacktown we we're going to st mary's granville uh you know we we're going back up to the blue mountains and you know it, it we're doing night shifts afternoon shifts morning shifts and the violence was incredible you know um we uh, as i talk to you i just see all these scenarios flash past me and all these things that happened you know and i was now i was not a police officer who took a backward step you know you're a police officer for a reason you uphold the law to people and i'd give people one chance and say mate you know um i'm going to give you this one warning stop swearing rah, rah, rah. you roll off leper at them and uh, um then they swear again and they said i'd lock them up you know, I, I, I didn't give them too much of a chance because you had to take control of the situations. If you let things get out of hand and they get the upper hand, you know, well, you've, you've lost any control, you know, and you, police should have control of the situation, whether people believe that or not. Um, you know, there's good and bad and everything, you know, but I think I was a very fair police officer. Um, I did a lot of arrests, um, some, you know, some pretty tough stuff too. You know, I dealt with some terrorist guys and I, I dealt with bikies and, you know, I'm never scared of anybody. I wasn't not because I had a firearm or because of my position. I just was never scared. You know, I was I could fight, and if I had to fight, I knew my, um, the, you know, I, I knew my defensive tactics. I knew what appointments I could use to subdue a person if I had to. I never punched a person or was cruel to anybody. Um, although if someone punched me, I would punch them back straight up, and I would tell the magistrate the same thing. And I never got into trouble for it. So, mate, yeah, it was uh, it was a tough scenario. I nearly lost my life uh, on one occasion. Um, I had to fight, you know, tooth and nail on several occasions to get out of a situation. I lost a tooth. I my L four and L five were damaged. They're still damaged this day. My knee. A guy tried to grab a person tried to grab my gun. And that snapped my meniscus, so that was painful. Um, yeah, look, you know, you, all these things happen, mate, to police officers. When you're in the thick of it all the time, Oliver, you, you're going to face these scenarios. And um, not everyone was like me, and I don't blame them. I, I wanted to get out there and, and get stuck in. Other officers were happy to sit in an office, you know, or 
trying different career paths. But me, I just love the streets. Um, I loved locking up the junkies. You know, I hated drugs. I hate drugs to this day. I don't care what anyone says about drugs. There's no excuse. If you take drugs, you're taking it for a reason, and the reason is wrong, you know. Um, you, you cannot – there's no excuses for taking drugs. You know, you know it's bad for you. You know it's deadly. You know it's dangerous, you know, whether it's a, a cocaine or meth or ice. You know, ice was the worst, and I did – Face some horrific circumstances with ice and saw some dreadful things with ice. Um, and my serious injuries occurred because of it, uh, people on ice. But, you know, I, I have no time for drugs. You can't go and tell me that, uh, oh, you know, I'm, I took these drugs for some particular reason. No, no excuse whatsoever. And I believe people are far too lenient with it these days because, you know, you're putting a chemical in your body, Oliver, that's changing you as a human being. It, it can change you. Um, there are circumstances many times I've seen where people have smoked dope and then gone into a psychosis of which they've never recovered, let alone snorting cocaine or injecting ice or smoking meth or or whatever these people might do, whether they think it's cool or not. You're putting a deadly drug and feeding the drug cartels more money. How is that smart? You know, it's not. And it's that was my aim to lock up as many as I could, and I did. And... Um, but on the flip side, Oliver, it you know, I might have won a lot of the fights on the streets and a lot of the challenges, but in the end, I probably lost because of the injuries I carry to this day and the terrible things that happened to me and to my mates. You know, I carry the PTSD to this day and it sort of ended my career, you know, and, uh, and I miss it every day, Oliver. I, I truly do. And I miss my mates. You know, they don't contact you much these days. Um it's just the way the world is, you know. They have a tough job to do and they probably don't want to remember seeing locks, which is my nickname, you know, break down and crumble as a police officer because of my injuries, you know. And, the, you know, and, and the, I had kids at the time too. And it, from a personal point of view, Oliver, the New South Wales police, they probably don't support you the way they should. That's my opinion. They weren't too bad to me. But in the end of the day, um, would I encourage anyone to join the New South Wales Police today? No, I wouldn't. That's my personal opinion. Not with the way that it's run, although the new um, – I worked with the new commissioner. She's a lovely lady, and hopefully she will guide and look after police a little bit more. But um, And on the flip side, sometimes you've got to be more careful of the police that you work with than the crooks on the street, and they're just as cutthroat. And I learned all these things, you know, over 17 long years and uh, and long years because I was out in the streets every day just about and um, not sitting behind a desk or rarely. I got out there and did my job, you know. I didn't want to rest up and maybe that was my Waterloo doing that. You know, I shouldn't have done that. But, yeah, you know, the, you see, the the last three jobs I did, which – and I don't mind telling people, I don't mind telling you, because if anyone can learn anything out of it, that's great. You know, I, I would hope that these words would echo well and truly that I did a little girl who got hit by a car on Pennant Hills Road and I was first off and I still hear her screams to this day. She was five years old and um, like a grenade had gone off under her and the grandma was trying to grab her, uh, a Chinese, I guess, and... Uh, you know, I was having to deal with a hysterical grandmother trying to grab her and then me trying to protect the girl and the lady who hit her. She was inconsolable. And 
that that because I had a daughter at that that age too, and so that affected me pretty badly. That incident. The next day, a young bloke got run over by a B double truck, same age as my son, twenty one. That was terrible, and 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 you know, being first off there with a guy, a good mate, who was a probationer at the time. Again, you know, what do you do? It's it was just helicopters and people and traffic and. It was just terrible, but the most important person was the poor young fellow lying in the middle of the road, which we could not do anything for, unfortunately, just encouraging him to keep going. And then the last job I think I did, I um, I went to a deceased at Tungabi and uh, the fireys went up into the second story. It was blow, you know, blow flies everywhere, so we knew it was, we could smell it, what it was going to be. Went in through the window. You need a police officer to go in first, and so I went in. I should have sent the probationers, but <laughs> I thought, oh, well, what the hell, I'll go in and do it. And um, they didn't want to do it, so I didn't want to pull rank because I'm not that sort of guy, you know. I'll, I'll just do it. I was acting sergeant, I think, at the time. So I went in, and then it was all well and good, and there was maggots everywhere and shit like that, And uh, but I couldn't get the bloody door open. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, I just had another. I think deep down my heart just said, oh, I'm done. I've had enough. I've seen so much, you know. I, the people who were involved in the execution of Curtis at Parramatta Police Station, I, most of those young blokes, I uh, used to call him Mr. Loxley. Remarkably, um, I'd seen grow up, you know, and used to deal with them on the streets all the time around, you know, Arthur Phillip High and the libraries and the main street there and the, you know. Church Street and all that at Parramatta, which is where I first met Peter Winbot, mind you, while we're such good mates because he saw me marching them back and forward to the police station every day through the mall. But um, I think when I got home that night, I something happened and I just wasn't able to sleep. I just couldn't sleep. I think the nightmares got con- in control of me. And, uh, yeah, mate, I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, no matter who it would be they would go through what I went through and, um, you know, was I compensated in the end? No, no, I live with the nightmares every night and uh, I still have the nightmares and I don't know why they come back. I don't think about it, you know, but they do and I'm not the only one. Of course, there's a lot of police out there who've committed suicide or have struggled and remain struggling for the rest of their lives where there's others who've just walked out, you know, and it's not affected them. I think it's not because your mind is any worse than anybody else's. I think it's just the circumstances that you face at the time uh, dictate the terms on how your body is going to react. And, uh, you know, I I was in cars with kids who were involved in horrific wrecks, that, you know, died in my arms as we lifted them out of the car. And, you know, I, I it's, 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 a, it's a great learning process for me um, you can't really put into words the horror that a police officer sees. And I'm just one police officer telling one story. Oliver, there's police officers out there who have had to see the most abhorrent and horrific things in, you know, the police officers that work at St Mary's, Granville, Mount Druitt, Blacktown, and then the heavy areas that we worked, um, you know, full credit to them. they the most superb police and they get out there and they do it. Do they have backup from the bosses? I'm not so sure. Some bosses are good, some bosses are bad, like in any any uh, uh, occupation. But, you know, anyone, sergeant down, is just incredible. You know, they truly remarkable police. And police around the world are truly remarkable. 
And, and while I'm saying that, the paramedics and the nurses and the doctors, I mean, they're gods on earth. I don't care what anyone says. Without the gods on earth, which, you know, the nurses, doctors, etc., you know, they saved me, they helped me, uh, they help an enormous amount of police. What they're going through at the moment with COVID is terrible. Um, you know, I feel for them. I've got some really good mates who are paramedics still. Uh, yeah, mate, it's... Um, it's a really tough scenario. I, I just wish the hierarchy of the New South Wales police had treated not just me, but other police better. You know, they, it, it, we do, we choose this job and it's the most awful job. It's the hardest job you could ever imagine. The danger out there is always just around the corner and, and you don't know when it's going to rear its ugly head. And, um, you know, you go to a job. You put the lights and sirens on, you flush through the streets a million miles an hour, get, getting there because you know you're going to face something that's not good. And when you get there, you've got to assess the situation as you get out of the car, you know, so you, 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 you ride on your, your game as soon as you get out of that police car and then, you know, you that's when your mind really snaps into gear, you know. Uh, but, look, it, 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 was a, it was a job I chose. I can't and I won't go back and say, hey, you know, it's my fault. It's not, it's, you know, it's, you choose these occupations and you, and you go in with eyes wide open, not eyes wide shut. And you know it's going to be tough. But really and honestly, Oliver, uh, nothing prepares you for a job as a police officer. Nothing. And I know the army, you know, you go to war, soldiers go to war, and particularly First World War, Second World War. But, you know, a police officer, it's a different sort of war we face because we go out every day of the week. Every day of the week, the police officer is out on the streets or in a car or going to a situation he doesn't know anything about. Um, just walking down the street, he can be abused and that. But um, a police officer is uh, in the firing line for the most part every day of the week and for years and years and years at a time. And, uh, you know, not taking nothing away from our servicemen in any way or form. I mean, to, you know, the things they see in combat are awful. But I'll tell you what, um, the things I've seen day in, day out, uh, you know, like I said, just through those situations I just brought up, um, that was three days in a row. And, and, and it's, it's mind-numbing to, you know, to just have to do it every day of the week. And then the paperwork. And there's another story. The paperwork is terrible. The defence lawyers, crafty buggers, um, who, you know, I think most of them know that their clients are guilty, but they defend them anyway. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and it's just very, very tough. And it's busier and busier and busier, although probably COVID's taken a few people off the streets. But, you know, of course, when I was there, it was very, very busy. But, yeah, so I, I couldn't I couldn't think of a way of, uh, editing down what I've just said, mate. I think, you know, to, to be a police officer, you, first thing you need to do is you're putting your life on the line. You need to know that you're putting your family's life on the line because, A, they are going to be worried about you every time you go out and B, the ramifications of the things that you see that you bring home can be all-consuming, you know, and uh, affect your family life. And it affects a lot of police's family life. And that's the hardest part of it too. And it affected mine. And, um, but hey, 
you know, I'm out of the police now. I learned a lot of lessons. I've moved on and I'm in a whole new world now, mate. You know, I, like I said, I, I still suffer the nightmares and things, but, you know, my kids are good too. They know I do. And, uh, but you just, you just deal with it. And, um, yeah, you just move on, mate. So, but my books have been a savior. They always have been, and they were allowing me to occupy my mind in other uh, areas, you know. So, I'm enjoying that now. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Um, well, I guess now we'll make that progression um, to your work as an author um, post uh, police officer career. First of all, with uh, speedway racing, I believe. Um, yep. Tell us how you got into the speedway racing. You touched on it a little bit before, um, obviously through photography and then working on a magazine. Um, how did it then progress to actually writing a book? And well, how my first, sorry, mate, my first book was back in 85. It was just called Sprint Cars. And uh, it was just an accumulation of photographs that I put together went to a publisher, a guy called Morris Kelly, who um, <laughs> unbeknownst to me ran Kelly's bookshops, those famous adult bookshops, but he uh, he also published independent uh, books as well, motor racing. He was very enthusiastic towards motor racing. And, of course, he had this press at Marrickville, and uh, the press, of course, printed his, his uh, adult uh, books and magazines, but... Um, he also published some really good motor racing books and uh, I just went along with him one day and uh, spoke to him and he agreed to do this book on sprint cars that we put it out and uh, it was just photographs basically and a few intros, et cetera, and captions. But it sold out, which was great. So um, I, I did that one book and then, you know, I sat back and thought, okay, well, no, I just got on with life and um, – when I joined the police in 2001, I, because uh, it's funny, you know, I, I knew it was going to be tough, you know, I knew it was going to be a tough scenario and I needed something, I thought, to occupy my time, my downtime, because usually you work two days, two nights, and then you go and, um, uh, you know, have, you know, two, three, four, five, six days off, you know, they give you a stretch of days off. And um, so, uh, I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I've got to occupy my time. So I decided I wanted to publish my own book. And so what I did, I I went to a couple of independent publishers, good people, um, and did books for them, started accumulating the photographs that I collected over the years as a Speedway fan. And uh, a good friend of mine, Dennis Newland, who, was, uh, who introduced me to Speedway, well, didn't introduce me to Speedway, but got me my first start photographing at Paramount Speedway back in the 80-81 season. And um, we've been friends ever since. And uh, then I moved to publishing my own books because I thought, you know, a, a book I did for a company it wasn't what I wanted. It was, you know, I thought it was pretty minor language shithouse, you know. I thought I could do a lot better. So I, um, Laura and Jeff Hosnell, I, uh, from uh, two people that I'd known, uh, we went into business together and did these beautiful lavish coffee table books that are as good as anything in the world, uh, like Ghost in the Bullpen, Speedway by the Freeway, Tasman Cup, Formula 5000 Thunder, Liverpool Part 2, as I'd done Liverpool Part 1 myself. Um, so we followed that on. And 
um, it was great, you know, because I'd work these 12, 14, 16-hour days, come home and, you know, just either have a coffee or a wine. I've not, never been a beer drinker. And I'd sit back and work on the computer on these books, you know, whether it was, you know, contacting Formula One greats, you know, for the Tasman book or Formula 5000 drivers. Um, I had Jack Brabham and Jackie Stewart write a forward for me for one of my books, Tasman Cup, which was an honour. And um, so I was putting those books together. Then I decided, um, you know, Laura and Jeff wanted to retire. So, um, and I wasn't making much out of them because, you know, they were fronting up the costs. And I thought, well, you know, I should do this myself. So uh, then I went and published my own books and um, and just kept doing it since. And we've moved on to posters as well. Um, so, yeah, the rugby league books, well, what happened was, Oliver, it had always been my dream to do a rugby league book. I thought I could do something that was quite unique. I had a good look at all the books that had been done in the past and I thought to myself, I think I can do something better than this, you know, and I'm not denigrating in any way what had been done previously, but I just thought I could do something really good that would be more photographic because people love imagery and the imagery of rugby league is just wonderful, you know, particularly from the 60s, 70s and 80s. So I got in contact uh, after I was medically retired from the police. I had a bit of a think about things and then I had contact. I contacted Alan Whitaker and we had a meeting and Alan's a well-known author, as you know, and uh, I put a proposal to him and then we got in contact with Ian Collis and Ian had all the photographs um, that we would need. Graham Munro, a good mate of mine, also had some magic photos from the 80s and he photographed from, you know, probably half the 80s, uh, beautiful colour slides. Uh, 90% of it had never been seen before, probably more. And so we just started putting these books together. I put the money up from um, from what uh, uh, money I was given as a retirement uh, from my insurance because I thought, well, I need to do these books. I need something to do now that, um, that can, you know, I can do at my own pace, you know, at my own leisure. Um, give me something to occupy my mind, to keep my mind strong. And so, yeah, we did that. So we did the first one, League on Sunday Work on Monday, which was a title I'd, I'd always wanted to produce. And uh, it was, it was going to be Footy Monday, Work Working Monday. Uh, sorry, Footy Sunday, Working Monday. But you know, we talked about it. We thought, okay, we'll keep the word League in. So League on Sunday, Work on Monday. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's done... I don't know if I'll make money out of it, but I'll get my money back, I think, in the end. It was a very expensive exercise, but I learned a few lessons out of that one. And then I went and uh, decided that um, I had all these incredible pictures of Graham Munro's left over. And so I thought, well, you know, I've never been ashamed of coming forward, you know. And I, So I wrote to Peter Volandis, and it's funny, you know, people told me, don't bother, you'll never get back to him. Well, I... That's not true at all. He's always got back to me. He's been nothing but a gentleman. And of all the people that I've met, even in speedway racing, motorsport, uh, overseeing the sport and that, this guy is exceptional. He's an exception to the rule. He kept his word. The rule, 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 the
Hello. We just had a quick interruption yeah. there. I just realized my microphone had turned off, so it's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sorry okay. Uh, where was I, mate? Okay, yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter Volandis. Okay, I, I couldn't uh, couldn't fault him. Uh, he he was he kept his word. Um, he always contacted me back. And Rachel Kramer, his PA, has been fantastic as well. Um, you know, and and they kept their word. And and he wrote the forward for me for the very tough men. Um, they are also allowed Alan and I to go through and select what photographs we needed um, from the archives for the early 80s and the late 80s, which we didn't have to cover. Um, and we just put a beautiful book together. I, I must thank all the players. Uh, I, I decided to make it more a first-person book, so the players themselves tell the story this time. So guys like Ian Roberts and uh, Don McKinnon and Bruce Clark, Brett Clark, Alan Faller, um, you know, Mark Graham. Uh, what a gentleman he is too. Uh, Peter Tunks, uh, Peter Peters, wonderful guy. Uh, Dean Ritchie, who wrote the introduction. Um, Tony Adams, uh, who wrote the afterword. Uh, just so many wonderful guys, you know, like just just really, really decent people and uh, um, gave their time freely and wanted nothing back in return. I sent them a book and that, and uh, they still got some more books because we had to get it reprinted because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, we had a little mistake where the, we sent the corrected pages to the printer and unfortunately some of them didn't get uh, um, corrected. So we had to put an errata in and uh, so we've since had the book reprinted a second time, fixing all those little errors. But, um, you know, these things happen. Uh but no, mate, I, I, the NRL have been terrific. Um, been a pleasure to deal with. I can't fault them. Um, I know rugby league is a very tough game in terms of administrative uh, administrative situations these days, you know, and talking about, you know, some of the things that people do in their private lives. Uh, I Like I said, it's very disappointing to see and it must be so frustrating for them and for the sport and the fans, you know. It must be very difficult. But, uh, you know, people learn the hard way, I guess. Um, but, no, the NRL has been terrific, and, and we've since got the support of the NRL for uh, Brothers on the Field, which is Indigenous Australians in Rugby League, and for 25 years of the NRL. So uh, they've come on board to assist me and as many images as I need, and I've got to thank Daniel Mears and, um, again, Peter Volandis, Andrew Abdo, and others who have... I don't know why they're supporting me, maybe because you know, I've kept my word and, uh, you know, I, I haven't let anyone down. So, um, yeah, if that's a reward, then I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that reward, mate, I guess. But, yeah, oh, I know there's people out there, you know, there's always people out there who um, like to uh, put people down, you know, for either success or for their individual views. You know, I'm well aware that NRL has that issue as well. Um, I don't put any pressure on any of the media people or anything like that. I just figure that if they want to help me, they will. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, look, I'm very proud, you know, like guys like Dean Ritchie and uh, uh, Mark Levy from 2GB and that, you know, they've given away my books and, from, for the continuous call team shows and um, 
you know, Ben Fordham's given away my books and, you know, been very supportive and um, I give those books freely to people because I believe that, you know, any publicity is good publicity, but I really believe in the product too. I think it's a great product. And at the end of the day, these books are for the fans and for the players and the players are what made us fans. So, you know, like Gary Jack has been fantastic recently too and um, Graham McNeese and John O'Farr and you know, so many good people out there. I wish it was the same in Speedway, you know, but this is what professionalism is and the NRL is pure professionalism. Yeah, sure, they make their mistakes, I'm sure, but, um, boy, I tell you, it's a whole new world you're dealing with, Oliver. It's a whole new world, you know, not only enormous money but and, and potential for sponsorships and that but just you know it's just great to be involved with a sport that is uh just does it so well you know uh, we've just had an 80 million dollar speedway built in sydney they have three photographers going there no media and nothing it's just a joke you know just a joke and um you know this is the difference between a professional sport and an amateur sport you know um but I love my speedway and I hope things change and I'll always try to support it the best I can. I've spent a lot of money um, supporting it. Um, the difference between motorsport and rugby league is just the professionalism. As you've probably found out too, Oliver, you know, like it's – rugby league is a really, really, um, uh, really uh, professional sport, you know. Yeah. It's great to be involved in it. It truly is. Yeah, it is. You definitely see, I guess, the differences in situations and exactly who you're dealing with in those situations as well, if you get what I mean. Um, some people take the more professional stance, which is fine. Uh, some people are a bit more relaxed, if you know what yeah. I mean. It sort of just yeah. depends on who, who you're dealing with and what situation you're in, I guess. Yeah. Look what you guys do. Your footy and frothies show and now what you're doing, Oliver, you know, it all goes to ensuring the popularity of rugby league, you know, and um, every, every sport has its Waterloo. Every sport has a time where it, it needs the media more than ever, more than it will ever admit, you know. Um, doesn't mean to say that the media needs to uh, be flippant or anything like that, but I think the media should always be very aware that the rugby league makes their living gives them a living particularly a lot of the journalists in rugby league um whether it's you know television or radio or whatever newspapers the sport is so big and so you know well it's just an enormous sport like it's in it you got your nfl you got your soccer you know, and then you've got your NRL, you know, like these are massive sports, uh, you know, well-funded and well-supported and, you know, incredible television coverage. And, you know, they support a whole industry away from the NRL, you know, the media. Uh, look at the guys employed in the media alone just for NRL. Uh, a lot of those blokes would never have seen the carnage and horror I've seen in my life and never probably worked a... Uh, a life that I have, you know, they've been quite lucky. You know, you've made a life out of rugby league, out of football. I haven't had that privilege. So I can see from both angles, you know, I can see, okay, well, you know, I've worked hard for a living and uh, uh, been given nothing. And uh, I think I've 
uh, <clears throat> now deserve what I get. Um, you know, and, and others out there should be very, very respectful of the NRL and the privileges that they've been given because of the game. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, to, to live your whole life just in one game, just as a, you know, is, is the ultimate, isn't it? I mean, that's what we all dream of, you know, and not having a go at anybody about that. I mean, good luck to them. I mean, if they can make a living out of just going and living a world, in a world of football, that's excellent. Um, 99.999 of the population will never get that opportunity. But um, for those who do, they should never, uh, never forget that there's a lot of people out there working very, very hard lives, very, you know, doing it very, very tough. And so when success does come along for people like myself, you know, it's, it's a lot more sweet, I think. Um, and like I said, the, the NRL, um, it's just been wonderful. They've given, they've now given me an opportunity as I headed towards my sixties, you know, to, um, produce some books that in turn will reward not only the NRL, but all those players that, that, that made the game so special. And it is, and I have to say the greatest game of all, it is an incredible spectacular spectacle, I should say, you know, the players are so fit and fast and, you know, maybe not as tough as they used to be back in the 60s, 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, you know. It's a different game. But they are fast and superb athletes, you know. Um, they still give each other a bit of a <laughs> a short short uh, uppercut here and there, which is great to see. And the odd squabbles still break out. I wish they'd bring back the the scrums because I think the scrums were a true test of an endurance of some sort, you know, that it was a competition within a competition there in the scrums alone, you know. I'd love to see the scrums back because it looks pretty silly how they are at the moment. Um, but that's that's my only bugbear with the, with the with the game these days. But, yeah, mate, it is an incredible spectacle. And, uh, yeah, so many great people have made it so, so, um, so good. And um, part of – I'm just a small part of it, of course, and it wouldn't even be, you know, a, a dot at the end of the sentence. But, um, you know, I've, I've been able to uh, produce some books, Oliver, that um, the players and the fans seem to really enjoy. And um, that's the greatest joy for me. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing your story with us today, Lox. Um, as people would be able to now know you've been through quite the journey some ups and downs. I will say, though, that Adrian, the host of Footy and Froffies, is very much looking forward to getting you on for an interview about very tough men of the 80s. Because, as I said, at the start, we did come out for League on Sunday work on Monday for that event there, that launch event. But Adrian still definitely wants to get you sometime before the season. He, he can obviously sort that out with you, but he definitely wants to get you <laughs> for an interview about that book. That's why I didn't try to dive too deep into... um into very tough men of the 80s because I know he wants to do a deep dive into that with you and get into your upcoming projects as well, which you alluded to as well, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing. But other than that, um, once again, thank you for coming on to tell your story. Um, is yeah. there anything you'd like to say before we finish up? No, I think uh, for people today, I think for young people today, you know, uh, when I say, you know, I, I personally I wouldn't join the New South Wales Police. It's not because I don't love the job. It's because the way the police is today within the organisation itself, it's, um, 
you know, it's it's just, uh, I guess people talk about the good old days when police used to support each other a lot more than they do now. It's just a different game. It's still a very dangerous game, get, don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, there's far better prospects out there for young people if they really want to look at them. Having said that, you know, I'd, I'd be a paramedic, you know, or a doctor or a nurse. That's what I would like to do. If I had my time again, that's what I'd do. Um, no, mate, no, I don't really have much, you know, I know it's a story and I've probably waffled a bit, but, you know, I don't, I, I'm not denigrating anybody. I'm not saying that anyone is better than anybody else. I'm just saying that, you know, sometimes you've got to go with the hard knocks to learn what life's all about. Some people uh, don't realise that and they have an easy, easy run of it and then make out that their life has been, you know, really tough and it's not the truth at all, you know. Um, uh, there's story behind stories everywhere in life, you know, but uh, for the most part, I, I, try, I told the truth today about the policing and what I see and what I saw and what I still come across at times because people, police don't get the opportunity to tell their side of the story. Um, people will never understand the trauma of the job. Um, the same with the goes with the nurses and the a, you know, accident emergency people, AMBOs and all that. And then when you step into a world where, like the NRL, where, you know, it, it's they've made a life for so many people, which those many of those people would never comprehend what we outside face. Um, they must, they have to be considered to be the world's luckiest people, you know. And I'm not, again, I'm not taking away from those people who, just sit back and just make comments for a, for a living. Um, you've got to actually live it first. And I probably have a lot more respect. Uh, you know, I, I like the fact that a lot of the, like Peter Sterling, I will end by saying Peter Sterling, what a wonderful asset to the sport he's been and to media. You know, there's a guy who um, truly is someone that you can look up to, you know, I think. For young people as well, the way he carries himself and the way that he's, 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 he's uh, not only uh, his, his playing days were just incredible and what a privilege it was to grow up watching him play, but his, his demeanour as a media person, it was nothing short of first class. And, and, and uh, I'm very, uh, I'm in awe of Peter Sterling. I think he was just bloody wonderful and it's sad to see him's gone from the game from that point of view. But, uh, you know, like Dean Ritchie and guys like that have been fantastic. Peter Peters and there's so many others that have helped me along. And those who helped me, I really appreciate. And I'll be forever thankful that they've even given me the time of day because 90% of them would never have known who I was. I've just come across over the last couple of years. And um, they're probably saying, who the hell is this guy, you know? Um, but oh, hopefully I'm there for all the right reasons. Yeah, well, Tony, once again... Thank you for jumping on today and telling your life story. If any of you out there are listening and you'd like to jump on to tell your story, just please get in contact with the page or if you're friends with me personally on Facebook, whatever, get in contact and I'll get you on. But other than that, this has been a chat with Oliver and I'll see you.